uh, webinar today, our Coronavirus Community of Practice webinar entitled The Family Lifeguard. And this is an update uh, for 2022. I'm Dr. Charles Denham, and I am chairman of TMIT Global and founder of the uh, uh, MedTech Bystander Rescue Care Program, uh, TMIT Global, and this initiative of the coronavirus uh, community of practice. Um, we're now uh, at August 4th, 2022. We're uh, heading our way through uh, the summer and heading into fall. And uh, we've got some real challenges because we've got a surge, as you can see on the slide. And those of you that are joining us with uh, from um, uh, on a podcast, you'll be aware of the fact that we've got a surge with the BA5 uh, virus. If we look at the, and we highly recommend the Hopkins maps and the heat maps, as well as the, the graphs that show what's going on, we see a real surge going on. I live in Southern California and our office in, in Austin, Texas uh, also is seeing a surge uh, and uh, we have a real challenge there. If we look at the deaths, we see that our deaths have remained pretty high. Although the attention of the press has been pretty minimal, uh, we definitely are seeing that. So today, our topics are the family lifeguard, and our intention is really to update a lot of the information that we've delivered over the last nearly 30 months uh, of this coronavirus community of practice. We're going to address the layers of protection as a reminder and then update where these layers really fit misinformation and disinformation, and why it's so critical that we really pay attention to the trusted sources of information, waning immunity and vigilance regarding this new virus, this Omicron sub-lineage uh, BA5, and probably more to come, reinfections and long COVID, which is a significant risk for people that are getting infected and reinfected, and preventable holiday risks, uh, which are critical. Um, we have a number of uh, uh, wonderful speakers today, uh, hailing from uh, medicine, emergency preparedness, uh, RNs, MDs, uh, law enforcement, um, and great educators to update some of the information that we've covered uh, today. We always want to start with the, um, uh, the message uh, from the patient uh, and the voice of the patient. And we have Jennifer Dingman sharing uh, that today for us. Uh, Jennifer is uh, the founder of Pulse, uh, an organization focused on medical error. Uh, she's worked very closely with us for many years. She's a winner of the Pete Conrad Global Patient Safety Award. Um, we meet uh, almost every other Saturday with a small group who had a huge impact on US healthcare by starting a grassroots uh, uh, approach to uh, tackle medical air and what are called the hospital acquired conditions. And so uh, we're really del delighted to have Jenny uh, share opening thoughts with us today. Jenny, thank you so much for your steadfast support of our program. Uh, you have been with us uh, since March of 2020. I can't believe how long we've been doing this. I want to uh, uh, ask you to be the voice of the patient and the voice of the family today. Can you set our course? Thank you so much, Dr. Denham. It's a pleasure to be here. COVID is something that we have to all learn how to live with, and this is such a perfect topic for today, being the family lifeguard. Here we are in the middle of summer, and we're still fighting COVID in the middle of something that 
should be a really wonderful summer. It still can be if we just listen and do everything that we can to take care of our families through this COVID. I am so thankful for everybody that's here today, and I encourage you to please share the program with your colleagues, friends, and neighbors. I'm excited to hear everything that we're going to hear today, so I'll hand it back to you, Dr. Denham. Thank you, Jenny. So uh, our purpose, mission, and values are critical to us. For those of you that are new to us and those on the podcast, um, our purpose is that we will measure our success by how we protect and enrich the lives of families, patients, and caregivers. Our mission is to accelerate performance solutions that save lives, save money, and create value in the communities we serve. And we take our our values very seriously. Uh, They spell I care integrity, compassion, accountability, reliability, and entrepreneurship. We learned the critical nature of core values by one of our wonderful wonderful partners, a co-founder of JetBlue, Ann Rhodes, who taught us the specificity and importance of the behaviors tied to values. Not that we live them every day, but we, we aspire to do so. None of our speakers today uh, have any uh, relationship with product, service, or technologies that'll be discussed. The funding of this program is entirely by family philanthropy. No money, direct, indirect, or in affiliated fashion comes from the pharmaceutical or device industry. For those of you that want to come back to see the information and watch the video or listen to the podcast from our website, uh, you may go to safetyleaders.org and you'll be able to then uh, look at the bios and actually watch the videos that we'll be showing today or listen to the audio. Uh, We have finished our Q3 uh, progress report, and that may be found on our website as well. Our Coronavirus Care Community of Practice uh, is located there, and you may go to uh, www.medtechglobal.org and coronavirus response and be able to watch a, a longer video than what we'll cover today. For those of you that are with us for the first time, TMIT is a nonprofit medical research organization founded in 1984. Uh, We have worked in many areas of innovation uh, and focused on uh, the area of medical error as well before uh, COVID uh, hit. And uh, and over those many years, we've collected uh, more than 500 subject matter experts and 3,100 hospitals in our research test bed where we've conducted much work. Uh, Our coronavirus care community of practice, and for those of you that are on the podcast, we have images of the uh, contributors. We started with about 60 experts in March of 2020, uh, uh, 2020, and and that has grown to more than 150 that include doctors, nurses, finance, business people, uh, people uh, uh, in middle school, uh, all the way through from, I would say, from 8 to 80. We also have uh, contributions uh, from the Discovery Channel documentaries we've produced, Chasing Zero and Surfing the Healthcare Tsunami. And we have a series of three minutes and counting videos focused on bystander rescue care with a number of experts. And uh, and I won't go through the list of our experts from government and from uh, major medical centers. 
Uh, our coronavirus care results as of today, if you look at it by the numbers, we've launched a 1,000 family household study, which is continuous. Uh, we've undertaken 53 90-minute broadcasts, both in medical air as well as uh, in the coronavirus program. And we've produced 29, as of this month, 29 survive and thrive tra uh, family training programs, including this one. We have a number of uh, topics that we've covered. We won't go through that list uh, for you today. Uh, however, you can go to the website to see the many areas we've covered because today are really co we're covering highlights and we've covered everything from uh, what families can do at home to testing to bystander rescue care through the various surges uh, and even fraud in the ecosystem. We're particularly delighted to have a wonderful group of youth and young adults that are chaired uh, by uh, leaders that are are, uh, and served by leaders in some of our greatest universities uh, and high, high schools. Or, uh, and this under 30 group have made enormous contributions to uh, the work uh, that we're doing. Uh, for those that are on the podcast, uh, just to rattle off some of the universities, Harvard, Stanford, UCI, UCLA, Chapman University, USC, UC San Diego, UCSB and Santa Barbara, Yale, University of Florida, Tufts, NYU, Princeton University. Our focus has been on the essential critical workers. Uh, that uh, Those were the 16 industry sectors that had to keep go going to work when we were locked down. And then in August of uh, 2020, um, uh, the educators were declared essential critical infrastructure workers, and we expanded our work there. We've realized that if we save the families, to save the families, we have to save our workers. Uh, and um, uh, what has been critical is we've really learned that a lot of our essential critical workers, especially in healthcare today, are suffering and out of work right now, sick uh, with the BA5 uh, Omicron sub lineage, lineage because they're getting sick in the community, not at work. So uh, please feel free to go and watch any of our 90 minute uh, courses on video, on your phone, or as podcasts as we've recorded all of them. Finally, our 1,000 worker family study, and so these are worker families and living units, including college students, focused on uh, readiness, response, rescue, recovery, and resilience. These are the components of our uh, uh, family plan that we recommend and the deep dive that we've undertaken. Uh, so, uh, 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 one year ago, uh, we undertook uh, the development of a checklist for families to make things safer, and this was really led by, uh, by Mr. David Bashkin, award-winning educator, our MedTAC master instructor and Eagle Scout uh, advisor and merit badge counselor, and my son, who's a high school student, a co-founder of the MedTAC Bystander Rescue Care Program back in 2015, uh, avid surfer and competitive surfer, and they put together a checklist um, with uh, uh, the help of a number of the young people that were in the uh, in uh, uh, our schools and and college as well, and a family huddle checklist that covered before an event what to do during an event and after an event to focus on what we'd known then. And the idea was the family lifeguard was lifeguards spend ninety percent of their energy and their time and their training on prevention and 10% rescue. We think of them as always being the rescue uh, leaders, which they are, but they do a ton of prevention to keep people out of trouble. 
And so when we focused on the safe practices for COVID of social distancing, use of masks, hand washing and disinfecting services, those were built into this family huddle checklist. And we're delighted that we were delighted to have a visitor. Uh, actually, many of you in healthcare may know Bill George. Um, and we had Bill George, the former CEO of, Med of Medtronic, who was also uh, a full professor at uh, Harvard uh, uh, Business School uh, visiting and agreed to uh, be our guinea pigs for this checklist uh, when we got started. And so um, we'll cover some of the updates uh, to that. But we asked Mr. David Besh, who's actually teaching today, um, to actually um, answer a few questions and address this, this issue. David, thank you so much for taking your time today uh, to help us really update this concept of the family lifeguard uh, now here in uh, uh, towards the end of the summer of 2022, heading into fall. Uh, you actually saved the first life through our MedTAC program uh, when we started way back in 2015, and we're just so grateful for your steadfast support in this idea. Uh, David, as a science teacher and as a, a leader and guide to the chief family officer, Officers. What's your message about heading through summer and into fall now that we have the Omicron BA, uh, BA5 virus that is probably the worst we've had, very transmissible, ev evades natural and vaccination immunity? Um, uh, isn't it really important now that the family really, uh, really get organized and try to minimize infections? Absolutely, Chuck, and thank you for this opportunity. Um, the chief family officer is a critical role within any organization, but particularly families. Um, and since we've, we've all been kind of living through COVID and all of the updates and the changes, people's guards are starting to become uh, a little bit let down. And now, especially with this new version, it's critical that we, that we stay informed and that we update our family, um, our family plan and we make sure that everybody knows their role so that we can continue to stay safe. David, you've really established for us the principles that the kids really want to be involved, they want to have tasks, and they really can learn this science regarding the virus. Is that still your feeling now here, uh, uh, you know, almost 30 months since uh, we got started? Um, absolutely. I think that that feeling has become even stronger. And uh, I would even go so far as to say that it's not just that children want to be involved, it's that children must be involved. I think that too often adults underestimate the abilities and the, um, the desire of children to be part of a family plan. And they are critical in helping keep everybody focused and they can play active, important roles within a family unit. Absolutely. What about the principle that has been lost because our public health system has really kind of become fractured and the communication systems have not been the best and, and we love the, our, our leaders in public health, but uh, that, that, that we've just not been able to get the message out that wearing a mask, keeping your distance is protecting others like our elders, like the people that are immunocompromised. Um, you and I have been teaching kids since, they, you know, uh, MedTech uh, from third graders on up and kids from eight to 80. Um, is it reasonable to keep enforcing the, the principles that it's not just about protecting you, it's about protecting grandma, grandpa, those people that have cancer or are immune compromised? Is that still, still something we really need to emphasize? Well, I think with, uh, as somebody who has a, um, uh, a relative who is battling cancer right now and is uh, severely immunocompromised. It's, uh, it's critical that we, we continue to keep that as a focus and that when, um, when we can, we do, what we, we do what we can to make sure that we're keeping others safe. 
Thank you so much. And uh, isn't it exciting to see what bystander care can do now? And, uh, you know, a lot of people didn't believe. Now now we're still having Bible studies and seeing kids that uh, you and I started with many years ago when they were just Cub Scouts, and we were testing CPR and the AE, and using AEDs and Stop the Bleed. Um, and we really didn't know back then that they could retain it and learn how to use it. Are you, uh, are you continually surprised by how much these kids can actually learn and apply? Um, you know, Chuck, I don't know if it's, if it's so much surprise. I think it's, um, we all know it back to the, back to the children being part of the, the family plan, children and especially young adults, they have tremendous abilities and potential. And to see this group of children that we started with many years ago that are now implementing their Eagle Scout projects and keeping communities and beaches safe, it's something that doesn't surprise me, but it just makes me incredibly proud. Fantastic. The, the, the other topic I just wanted to touch on is, is that there really is R&D, research and development, that can be led and supported by kids. You want to get, kind of just report to our audience the response of the kids as we taught this summer about stingray injuries here in Southern California and how to uh, take care of people and prevent long-term infections and harm and take care of pain? Oh, absolutely. So we, uh, we, we headed a uh, three-day camps over the course of the summer with over 60 students. And uh, each of those camps got trained by, uh, by Charlie Denham about stingray safety and ways to keep yourself safe in the water, ways to keep the stingray safe in the water, and what to do if you, um, if you are unfortunately stung. And I can tell you that the excitement level, the, uh, the responsibility while at the beach, the communication within the campers to remember to do the stingray shuffle, identifying where lifeguard stations are in case anybody is stung, um, it's something that they enjoy learning and they enjoy taking down to the beach. And again, they have the ability and the potential to communicate and to help keep others safe. And I think the more that we can do to continue to communicate and train young people, the better off our communities will be. Well, thank you, David. And thank you for your steadfast support of Bystander Rescue Care and for uh, being such a great role model. Well, thank you, Chuck. It's my pleasure. So uh, David Beshk, uh, one of the one of our real leaders in uh, in uh, our community of practice uh, across COVID, but also across multiple uh, areas of um, multiple areas of uh, science, is a science teacher. So what's new for 2022? Uh, because of community immunity and aerosol transmission, the checklist that was developed and it continues to be refined is, is now before an event, knowing the vaccination status of the guests, maintain the four pillars that we always talk about of distance, hand hygiene, disinfection of surfaces and mask use. We know some are more important than others. Now, why would we wanna know the vaccination status and know the threat status of the guests? And it's precisely because of what uh, Mr. Beshket said. We have elders, we have people that are uh, immunocompromised. They might be transplant patients, cancer patients. I'm a retired cancer doctor. Uh, when their white blood cell counts are bottoming out and they still wanna be with their families, you can have a very, very low immunity and still feel pretty good and wanna see your grandkids. So, uh, so the additional uh, element we added was prepare the bathroom, make sure that you've got optimal ven ventilation. Wherever you have an area with an airspace that is not being uh, ven well ventilated, you have the opportunity for the virus to linger. The former health minister of Switzerland, our partner there, 
who's actually the founder of the uh, WHO Foundation, uh, uh, actually caught COVID in a room where someone had been uh, uh, occupying it earlier, turned out to be COVID positive, uh, and Dr. Zeltner went in to record a Zoom meeting. No one else was in the room. He, uh, he didn't, felt he didn't need to wear a mask, and he caught COVID, and then uh, potentially put another family member at risk. So it's really uh, important then during the event to protect the at-risk guest and just say, hey, because grandma's under taking chemotherapy, we're going to put her over uh, here and spend time with her in the most ventilated area. And then after the event, we had glove up to clean up. And, and we realized that it's probably optimal to wash surfaces and make sure not to touch our faces and hands, but that aer aerosol spread is way more important than these other areas. And so uh, uh, Charlie Denham, uh, for those of you that will be listening to the longer uh, audible uh, and um, and uh, uh, podcast, you'll hear more detail regarding uh, the, the checklists. So we also asked Christopher Peabody. Christopher, uh, I've known since uh, I was an advanced leadership fellow at Harvard and on faculty there, and, and uh, Toff Peabody goes by Toff, uh, was a third-year medical student. He's now uh, an associate professor of emergency medicine. We've worked on numerous projects together. He's also the director of the Acute Care Innovation Center at the University of California uh, in San Francisco. And we've asked uh, Toff, to, to give an updated message uh, now that now where we are and he has a personal experience that he's going to share with you uh, regarding his whole his own family. So what we'll ask uh, uh, him to do and we've recorded this message because he's on duty uh, in the emergency department. Well, Toph, Dr. Peabody, we really appreciate your constant support of this coronavirus uh, community of practice. Uh, we're now in the summer of 2022. I can't believe that together we've been working with you and others at your organization and across the country for well over two years. Um, tell us what your view of where we are today with this uh, new Omicron sublineage uh, BA5 and where you see us heading this summer. Chuck, thanks for the question. I would say that um, we're not very different than most emergency departments around the country. Um, what we're seeing now is a, is a crisis of uh, being able to staff our emergency department, and that's for two reasons. One is that uh, folks are tired, um, especially our nursing staff has been on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemics for, for two years um, with limited um, support um, in many cases, and, uh, and they're burnt out, and I, you know, I, I uh, don't blame them. Um, it is, it's been a rough time. Um, uh, they've, they've dealt with, we've, we have dealt collectively with a lot. And so we're starting to see, see some, um, attrition from folks going away from emergency medicine and critical care medicine into other parts of medicine or quitting medicine altogether. Um, but the second thing with the uh, BA5 is that it's incredibly infectious. And so what we've been seeing is a lot of staff, um, uh, um, uh, going on medical leave because they got the infection itself. Um, this was very different than uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. And so we um, have been incredibly understaffed, which has resulted in us shutting down beds in the emergency department and increasing our wait times. And like I said, I don't think we're very different than a lot of emergency departments around the country. 
You know, I had a conversation this week with Dr. Casey Clements, who leads the emergency medicine service clinical lead at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. And he said the same thing, that they're very short of staff. And it's, it, it's not that they're getting it at work, they're getting it from the community. Um, which leads me to the next question. Your advice regarding masking, ventilation, distance, these, um, these layers that we've held in high regard prior to COVID and have been politicized negatively and positively, but um, your take on the importance of masking distance, po uh, poorly ventilated areas versus uh, well-ventilated areas and what families can focus on. Thanks, Chuck. I, um, I, you're absolutely right. Um, when we do contact tracing and we um, uh, speak to, uh, to folks that have to go out on leave, um, this is uh, via what we call community spread, um, usually from family members um, and staff contract. Um, uh, my own family that was contracted this way. I have a five-year-old um, daughter and uh, who came home with COVID and unbeknownst to us and uh, infected the entire family. Um, uh, I'm not atypical amongst the emergency department staff. Um, so yes, we get this through community spread. And I'll tell you what our family does. I think this is a, you know, now becoming more and more of a personal decision because a lot of the public health mandates that we saw early on uh, to help mitigate uh, the spread of COVID-19 are no longer in place. But um, we still mask when we go indoors. Um, I wear an N95 when I go to the um, grocery store. Um, and I, um, I also, um, you know, wear full PPE at work. Um, uh, but in well vent, as far as well ventilated spaces, could not recommend that enough. Uh, most of my social settings are, are outdoors. I happen to live in California, where that's um, uh, more appropriate than other places in the country. Um, but um, yes, I still mask when I'm indoors. I, uh, I um, my social situations are mostly outside. Um, those are the, the and then we, we test um, our family um, anytime anyone's symptomatic. Um, you know, and that could be fatigue, um, runny nose, you know, just general cold-like symptoms. And I think the reason I'm doing this, Chuck, is not necessarily for us because we had COVID, but with BA5, you can get COVID um, again really quickly. Even, at, even with that, we thought it was a three-month protection, but with BA5, we've seen that that's not the case. You can get reinfected um, very fast um, after you've had COVID. And so um, we're doing this really to, to help with our community and not spread it to vulnerable populations because frankly, and we're lucky, our family had a really mild case when we did get COVID, um, but we're still taking our precautions to uh, be good stewards of uh, public health. Fantastic, and I don't think that we can, first off, I underscore everything you're saying. My family, uh, thank you, Lord, that we haven't, we haven't gotten it, and we have some risk factors, all three of us in my core family, and then extended family, and we're really blessed that uh, the three of us that live together haven't uh, had it, but we're vigilant on, I just went and picked my dogs up uh, from uh, uh, grooming, wore the only guy wearing the mask, uh, grocery stores, we insist on it, 
uh, we're going to restaurants. Unfortunately, we live in California too, so we can be outdoors. We have not interfered with our social life. We host scouting events and high school student events on the beach. And, you know, fortunately we can do that where we live. And I know others can't, we have a lot of people from across the country and, you know, they have to be pretty creative uh, to do that. Toph, you helped me as I put together the five rights frameworks for a number of areas. And the area that I had you advise me on was the five rights of emergency care. It has received rave reviews from everyone. Um, is there anything we would change about the five rights that we put together as I review it, I wouldn't change a thing other than this transmissible BA5 is super transmissible, the recurrent infections, but then also making sure that we know who's vaccinated and who isn't and be vigilant on follow-up. But am I missing something? Is, is it as pertinent as it was? I think for uh, folks that need to go to the emergency department, um, uh, uh, you know, should follow the five rights and have them unchanged. Um, I, I think that um, if you need to go to the emergency department, um, realize that we're there for to serve and we're there to serve our community. And if you need to go, you, we want to see you. Um, so don't put off going to the emergency department. Um, but I would say the realization, the reality, excuse me, of emergency departments right now are that we are understaffed and we've seen a huge surge in workplace violence. So not unlike the um, flight attendants and the viral videos of folks who don't want to wear their mask um, and are, are screaming at people, um, uh, we see that in the emergency department more and more since uh, um, since basically the second year, year of COVID. Um, and that's, a, that's another thing that's really um, been hard um, about our work environment is we're seeing a lot more staff assaults from patients. Uh, some of those are COVID related, we think. Um, we're, you know, the wait times are, are slightly increased uh, for folks that, um, uh, you know, that can wait. Um, we will see you um, expeditiously. Um, once you're triaged and you need, you need to be seen right away, that is our priority. Um, but folks that can wait um, are waiting a little longer. Um, because of our staffing shortages and just realize that when you go, you're getting a staff that has been through a lot um, and they're taking a lot more um, from a workplace violence perspective than they ever have. Um, and so uh, we, we, we just welcome you and your, your kindness um, as we uh, try to take the best care of you that we know how. Well, thank you on behalf of all of us, Toph. Thank you for, you guys are the unsung heroes. Uh, we've recently, my son's surfing coach shattered his leg and one of our other colleagues, Dr. Chris Fox, helped us get him into the program and get him seen right away. And you guys are really the unsung heroes and at the tip of the spear right now. Uh, so uh, on behalf of all of us, thank you. Going to shift gears with you right now real quick to the area we talked about before we started this interview, and that's the opioid overdose crisis um, and the really critical issue in middle school, high school, college and young adults where fentanyl laced um, counterfeit oxy, 
uh, uh, pills, uh, cocaine, uh, and even, even the medications that people are taking for attention disorder to help them study are being laced with fentanyl. And an enormous number of first timers who have ever uh, taken something are, are dying because of respiratory uh, suppression. Uh, you wanna address how big a problem this is for those of us that have kids and uh, have college students and, and, and those that are in our families? Well, Chuck, I can't um, overstate this problem. Uh, we had more deaths from opioid overdose in San Francisco than we did from COVID. Um, you know, so to, to put it in a perspective, um, this, is a, this is a huge public health emergency. Uh, we've seen this um, uh, fentanyl, um, which is a cheap product to make, uh, flood the market. Um, and uh, it's basically any drug that you purchase um, from, uh, you know, uh, from, you know, a non-pharmaceutical place is um, uh, potentially laced with fentanyl, like you say. Um, as far as what, from a public health perspective, my recommendations are um, that anyone that, um, had, you know, had, that buys drugs um, needs, to, needs to have fentanyl test strips. Every single thing you put in your body should be tested for fentanyl um, if you've gotten it from a non-pharmacy. So this is including folks that are uh, trying to find cheaper um, Ativan, you know, or um, uh, cheap, you know, um, cheaper Xanax. Um, we've had a number of patients that went online, uh, thought they were buying from a reputable, sor reputable source, um, had some um, uh, uh, had this drug delivered to their house, um, and it was laced with fentanyl. You know, and uh, these folks almost died. So if you can test, you know, you know test um, everything with fentanyl test strips, we're trying to make those as widely available as possible, as and um, familiarize yourself and obtain. Um, so in some jurisdictions, it's harder to get than others, uh, naloxone. And uh, Chuck, I know your organization has done naloxone uh, administration teaching. I could not think of a more um, pertinent public health um, intervention at this point. We need to make naloxone uh, widely available um, in all different communities and all walks of life. Because Chuck, just like you mentioned, this is not just uh, isolated to a, to a few people. This is a ubiquitous problem. Uh, there's uh, fentanyl has flooded the market. It's extremely potent. And uh, if you're opioid naive, never taken opioids before, you have a high likelihood of overdosing, um, which leads to respiratory, to, um, uh, your inability to breathe, and, uh, and for you to, and a high likelihood of dying, um, which, is some, uh, which is what we're seeing um, in the statistics and on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, thank you, Toph. We really appreciate your thoughtfulness there. The issue of Good Samaritan care is so critical. Just want to underscore, have you underscore for us the importance of people in the community knowing CPR and AED use, how to use Stop the Bleed kits for severe bleeding now with so many uh, active shooter events, and even the Heimlich maneuver, which seems so simple, but in a crisis situation, it's something you really should have practiced. What about these Good Samaritan rescue care principles, these bystander care principles? Well, the studies are clear, Chuck. If you have a sudden cardiac death, um, your chances of survival are if someone next to you knows CPR. Um, if you can get good quality CPR as an outpatient, 
uh, meaning like you're you're you know at a basketball game, someone collapses, good quality CPR is uh, initiated right away. Someone can go and get an AED um, while simultaneously calling 911. Um, you're out of hospital. Your ability to come out of hospital and be neurologically intact, you know, walking out of the hospital on your own um, is dramatically increased. Um, that's known. Um, and so it's a matter of um, getting folks to know to know these interventions. Um, you know, having our families take uh, um, CPR certification courses. And Chuck, I, I know um, you, you know because you've been very close to um, some mass shootings, um, uh, recent ones um, where you're living. Um, uh, you know, and unfortunately, so many of us around the country have been in that situation. That uh, and we see gun violence going up and up um, in this post-COVID era. Um, that knowing a stop the bleed, uh, knowing how to stop the bleed will save lives um, in these situations and others. Um, and then the Heimlich uh, maneuver um, is, some, is a, a very simple maneuver, honestly, and, and can save lives from uh, folks who are choking. So, um, uh, I, you know, we talk about public health interventions, but this is something we can do ourselves um, to protect our family members uh, because we know they're effective. Um, and so anybody that has children um, should be CPR certified, in my opinion. Um, anybody, and if your child is old enough to be going out on their own, um, then knowing um, Stop the Bleed, then knowing the Heimlich, then knowing CPR themselves will also um, improve survival of people around them and also um, uh, your, your, your immediate family. Final question, Top, and you've been so generous with your thoughtfulness. Um, the critical importance to Nat Houseman of College 911 opened our eyes to the fact that everyone who has a college student, these rising freshman college students and anybody in college or singles that are over 18, unless you have a medical power of attorney for where they live, you can't be consulted by the physicians properly to help with decision making in a crisis. And she lost her dear son, Corey, and has been a real champion and a hero in patient safety for what she's done. The critical importance for having a medical power of attorney for loved ones. Well, I think Chuck, you uh, gave a great summary of, uh, on it right there. Um, we want your help um, in the emergency department. You know your family member better than anyone. Um, and so to be able to be there and help make medical decisions um, is something that uh, I think the healthcare system should welcome. Toph, thank you so much for uh, your generous contributions to this program now over two years. Uh, and I look fondly back to when we met in Boston uh, so many years ago. Thank you for all that you've done for patients and what you're doing there in San Francisco and, uh, and globally. Thank you, Chuck. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, Christopher Peabody covered a number of issues that we think need to be part of the the Family Lifeguard Program, not just for COVID. We're going to shift gears for a moment and talk to our pediatrician, a community pediatrician, uh, who is uh, Brittany Bartow. I've known her since she was a little girl. Uh, she is a terrific uh, pediatric uh, community pe pediatric specialist. And we've asked her to help us get an update on where we are now midsummer heading into the fall. Uh, Brittany is, uh, has been terrific all the way through the course of COVID. And we'll ask her to share her thoughts with, her, with us now. 
Brittany, first off, I just want to thank you so much for your wonderful contribution now over almost 30 months of this COVID crisis. And uh, you, you've just been a godsend to us and really help us with a lot of practical information for our folks that have kids and our grandparents that have kids and our doctors mm -hmm. and um, researchers from the major medical centers. As we head into this BA5 surge we're experienced today, what are you telling families about what they need to do to protect themselves? So the message hasn't changed that much. I know that people have gotten a little more lax on their COVID precautions, but I'm still telling people similar things, especially high-risk situations like crowded indoor spaces, especially where you don't know anyone else. I'd recommend masking. We still have masking in our office. Um, and you know just making smart decisions maybe going to that amusement park isn't the best idea right now doing like a park where things are a lot more you know like a an outside park where things are a lot more spread out or smaller activities would be a, a good idea at this point what are you telling families about kids get heading back to school it looks like we may continue to have a surge right up into september with this with mm -hmm. this virus that is really evading immunity and um it's it looks like a real beast as some of the people have been saying it's a tough it's a tough virus um so i definitely mentioned the one thing that we can all do and get vaccinated everyone over the age of six months can now get the vaccine so i'm definitely recommending that for every family that comes in um i got the vaccine for my five now six-year-old i just got the vaccine for my three-year-old so i'm excited to have that extra protection get into the school year um, and especially for parents who maybe had the first two vaccines, but were wondering about the booster, it's a really good time now to get that booster for their, you know, five and up kids, because they're going to get that extra little bit of protection going into the school year. How long does do the boosters last now as we look at the, the Omicron sublimit lineages and we look at the current virus? I'm not sure if that's changed much. I think that they've estimated the the shots are lasting like three, four, five months um, before they start waning. So again, getting that similar to the flu shot, getting that shot in right before the fall surge um, is a good idea because you're getting that immunity when we're expecting higher numbers. So parents and grandparents, uh, we're hearing that the recommendations are get the booster if you haven't had it, and then it'll be right about the right time in October, November, December, when you might get the booster that would uh, that would be focused on the Omicron subvariants. Is that is that a fair statement? That is what I've been hearing. They, now, I don't think there's anything official yet, but I'm hoping that that's what they do. As we look at the families and we go through the five R's, we've been studying now with many more than a thousand family units and living units. And we go through um, the thought of readiness. What can a family do to be uh, ready in case somebody uh, gets sick and gets this particular virus? So again, similar to before, we know so much about COVID now, we know it's spread through respiratory contact. We know that masking helps. So if someone in the household is sick, it's really about isolating them. And if they have to be in common areas, masking and 95s are fantastic with that kind of protection. So again, using all the same tools we've been using over the past two plus years, masking and isolation if you're sick. And then when we think about response, 
the second R is response. And when we think about someone does get sick, they are positive with a home test or a PCR test. Um, quarantine and isolation, not much has changed, has it? I mean, these principles really remain to be the same. Yep. So the there was a little bit of a change on the length of time that they were recommending to be completely isolated. So five days completely around no one. And then from day five to 10 around people in an N95. Um, but essentially it's the same idea that you're contagious for 10 days. So you shouldn't be unmasked around anyone for 10 days from the onset of your symptoms. And reasonable to have what one of my colleagues who came to work with us the, uh, today tested before he flew in from Texas and then tested when he arrived here so that we know that if he caught something on the plane, he's not communicable and he'll do another test probably in the morning uh, and be following that up just so that we can protect everybody here. And then we don't have to mask because we know that we're negative. Is that a reasonable approach when people travel is to use testing that way? I I think it's a reasonable approach if you're not having symptoms and doing that double testing, you know, a day apart or so, because even if maybe a couple of days you could become symptomatic, the rapid is pretty good for kind of like knowing if you're contagious at that point. So it is, it's another good layer to try to help prevent spread. Our third R is rescue. So when somebody really gets sick, uh, we've been recommending great care and taking them to the hospital or taking them to be seen with masking windows down if you're in a climate where you can so that the air so that you've got really good ventilation not putting the whole family in the car with the person who might be sick but uh, one person and then uh, making sure to get them in and get them tested uh, and and being prepared in case they do get severe disease which people are still doing uh, being prepared to be there for a while charged phones and 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 be aware of the fact that we have to keep our distance are all these things still uh the same they appear to be and this is what we're hearing yep absolutely it's we're using all the same precautions all the same preparedness we're unfortunately still seeing severe disease kids are still getting hospitalized more so now with this all these omicron sub variants than in the past so kids are still definitely getting sick Tell us about the third R, which is recovery. Uh, are we seeing as much uh, as much of the multi-system inflammatory uh, disease in, in kids? Is it getting worse? Is it getting is not as bad? We're hearing from the Mayo Clinic that a lot of people are really sicker than they were from some of the other virus uh, uh, lineages. So I, I can't speak specifically to the severity of MISC, but Omicron, again, has been causing more illness in kids, especially the zero to four and causing more hospitalizations in kids. And the kids that are getting hospitalized, one in four of them have to be in the ICU, which is not great. Um, so they're getting a little more sick with Omicron. So a little more sick. And, and that's why vigilance is, is really important. Now, what about long COVID? Uh, are, are you seeing long COVID in the families? Because, you know, you may not see it in the kids, but you I'm sure you hear about families in your community. We're seeing a lot of people that have uh, extended uh, symptoms and fatigue and not being able to be up to their typical cognitive or their physical uh, pre-status, pre-COVID infection status. Yeah, I, I mean, we're hearing about it indirectly through the parents. We're seeing it a little bit with the kids. I'm seeing more prolonged loss of smell and taste, unfortunately, and then some of the teenagers are getting the sort of prolonged fatigue you sometimes get with something like mono. So we're seeing it. It's it's not as 
severe maybe as in the grown-ups, but it's definitely happening in the kids as well. The final R is resilience. So as we kind of learn what we can do throughout the fall and in the winter, um, how can we, as we say in, in law enforcement, uh, harden the target of our family? How can we, what can we do to kind of be more resilient as, as we head, uh, head through this? The, and this might be uh, to, you know, have lots of masks, have the tests available, uh, plan trips and plan holidays with family, knowing that we may have immunocompromised or seniors. Um, re reasonable to kind of take that kind of a view, kind of a, a family lifeguard approach to say, how are we going to really kind of protect the family throughout the year? Yeah. I mean, something I've learned in the past couple of years is anything can happen at any moment. A person can get COVID and everyone's schedules and plans get completely flipped on their head. So I guess that resilience is recognizing that you can't control what's happening and being flexible when the plans change and being ready with what you mentioned, masks, testing, um, flexibility in your plans, because we've had a lot of that in the past couple of years. So this layered approach wouldn't change uh, at all, just that we've learned a lot more. Is that a reasonable? Yeah, we've learned so much about this infection and had gained so many tools over the past couple of years that we just have a lot more disposable. Again, the rapid tests, the masks, the N95s are readily available. We know a lot about the virus transmission and um, it's making us a lot more prepared, hopefully, for the next, <laughs> for the next ones. So the final question is many of us have uh, have family members that are suffering from cancer, might be on chemotherapy, radiation, immunotherapy, um, uh, are immunocompromised. Um, what do you recommend to a family if uh, we head towards the holidays and grandma or grandpa are, uh, are immunocompromised as, as we head to want to be with them and share that time with them? So something you had touched on earlier, the possibility of doing rapid tests in succession to try to prevent having any exposure to the immunocompromised person and depending on their vaccine status and everyone else's vaccine status, considering masks again. Gotcha. And, and since you brought up masks, it's such a controversial area. Uh, you know, are, will, do you believe there'll be recommendations if we continue to have a surge for, for masks in schools? And what, what are you telling families about wearing masks in schools? Because, you know, they get a lot of peer pressure not to do it, a lot of political pressure not to do it. And you and I know that we've been using masks for over 100 years in medicine with great utility. Um. I think there is a little less enthusiasm for universal masking in schools. Um, our school district has an automatic mask, mask threshold, so it, it's not really a discussion for us, but for parents who don't have as strict of masking rules, I think it's good to kind of look at the CDC recommendations of like the high and the low risk areas and maybe mask based on that map versus based on your school's policy if your school's a little more lax with masking. Right, kind of a difficult area. Well, listen, uh, Brittany, you've just been so gracious and such a great contributor to our team. And you know, when we started, you were one of the original 60 people and we now have <laughs> 100, 150 people that have contributed and continue to, and we're very grateful. So thank you for all the great advice. Sure, happy to help. So we really uh, uh, appreciate Dr. Bartos' help. So let's address this issue of layers of protection. 
uh, the Swiss cheese model that was popularized by Professor James Reason. I had the wonderful opportunity of working with him and collaborating with him. And he was so gracious to say that it was actually a young lady graduate student that was the originator of the application of this metaphor. But it really is something that, uh, uh, that, that, that we can learn. We look at distancing masks, disinfection, ventilation, and testing, not necessarily in that order, are the layers of protection that we need to kind of focus on. Distancing alone won't do it. Masks alone won't do it. Disinfecting surfaces are probably less important than they were before. Ventilation, now we know because of the aerosol spread, is much, much more important and uh, something critical that we really need to, uh, uh, that we need to be aware of and uh, something that is uh, very, very, uh, very, very important. And then testing, as Dr. Bartow had mentioned, uh, is is absolutely critical. For those of you that are on the podcast, we show the, the Swiss cheese model are a series of slices of Swiss cheese with holes at various different locations. And the fact that the virus, um, once those holes line up, that's when we're going to get infected. We use this Swiss cheese model and layers of protection when we think about uh, uh, infections in the hospital, but also medical error. And we think about the, the various uh, mistakes that we might be able to uh, address and make. So masks, what about the update on masks? You know, we've been producing videos, writing articles and doing a tremendous amount of work on this area since the very beginning. I'm showing an image uh, now of uh, the N95 mask by son Charlie wearing the N95 mask, the surgical mask and a cloth mask. So we've updated our video, which you may go to our website to watch. For those of you that are on the podcast, you may listen to it, but then go back and watch on your phone. And we're going to address these critical issues of filter, fit, and finish. These are the real principles that are critical. Even now in 2022, in uh, heading towards fall, these principles uh, uh, continue to be really important. Good day. I'm Dr. Charles Denham. I'm chairman of TMIT Global and one of the co-founders of the MedTech Bystander Rescue Care Program. Now in the summer of 2022 and heading into fall, we've learned a lot after battling the evolution of the coronavirus variants, and we now battle the Omicron BA5 subvariant, which is extremely transmissible and has significant capacity to evade both natural immunity and that generated by vaccines. We're having a number of reinfections. Infection risk is just basic math. The greater number of virus particles you potentially breathe, the greater the risk for infection and the greater the risk for severe disease. It's a numbers game. In medicine, we call this dose or viral load. It is believed that individuals become infected by the virus entering the body through the wet mucous membranes that are the moist linings of our nose, eyes, mouth, and respiratory system. Masks have become increasingly recognized as critically important. However, they're no substitute for social or physical distancing, which is most important, hand washing and avoiding touching our faces, and disinfecting high contact surfaces. Masks are one of these four pillars, and they all work together. The three critical factors of your use of masks are the filter, the fit, and the finish. The quality of the mask as the filter the fit with no air escape during breathing, and your finish, 
how you remove, clean, or dispose of the masks safely. Dr. Michael Osterholm is an internationally recognized medical detective and director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, or CIDRA, at the University of Minnesota, with more than 45 years of experience investigating infectious disease outbreaks. As I've stated, dating way back to April of 2020, in the earliest days of the pandemic, we know that this virus is transmitted largely by aerosols, those very tiny particles that right now, as I speak, are filling this room. If I wanted to understand an aerosol, I would be in a room with someone who is smoking a cigarette and say, oh my, I can smell that very quickly, even if I'm 20 feet away. And then I would say, does whatever I'm using to protect myself prevent me from smelling that? If you don't, then you know what? You're going to have viruses leak into whatever you have. And what I've been uh, really strongly urging is, yes, mask, but mask with the most uh, highly efficient and effective means you have. And these are the N95 masks. So now for the critical issues of masks. Filter. When we talk about filter, we mean how the materials of the mask block the virus from entering your mouth and nose. Before we talk about the types of masks and how they filter, we need to understand the basics of droplets and the two types of airborne transmission, large droplet and aerosol spread. A typical sneeze may unleash as many as 40,000 droplets. These not only cause direct spread to others, but land on surfaces we come in contact with all the time. First, it's important to know how small the coronavirus is. They're smaller than a micron or a millionth of a meter, and a droplet that can carry the viruses is about five microns. A human hair might be at 100 microns in diameter. A red blood cell might be seven microns, and you just can't see anything under 40 microns. So what infects us is just too small to see. We can become infected by breathing droplets expelled by infected patients who breathe, talk, sing, cough, or sneeze. The virus particles are encased in globs of mucus, saliva, and water. Bigger globs fall faster, so they splash down quickly. Traditionally called droplets, they fall rapidly onto anything nearby. Before new technologies were developed, scientists thought they only drop within three to as far as six feet from those infected. Smaller globs evaporate faster than they fall. Therefore, the viruses can linger in the air and drift farther afield. These are called aerosols. A competition between droplet size, inertia, gravity, and evaporation determines how far droplets and aerosols travel through the air. Gravity is stronger than evaporation on larger droplets and they settle faster and land on surfaces nearby. Aerosols are smaller and evaporate faster than they settle and float in the air. We now know that aerosols are a major route of spread. That combined with the contagiousness of the Omicron variant and subvariants such as BA5, this is a lethal combination. The filter is the first critical factor of masks and the N95 mask is being recommended by many experts now. However, they need a good fit to deliver the optimal performance of 95% filtration. Masks work by a combination of filtration and electrostatic attraction that catch viruses. An electrostatic charge is put on N95 and surgical masks in the factories. This helps them catch germs by attraction. The plus is this really works. The minus is that we have to be careful about how we might clean them for reuse in case it would take away the electrostatic charge. N95 masks catch droplets and viruses with very refined filtration materials. 
They're specified to catch 95% of 0.3 micron particles, and that's how they get their name. N95 masks are typically used in hospitals when caregivers are performing medical procedures with clear aerosol risk. They must be fit tested using a method defined by the manufacturers to make sure there's no leakage around the seal of the mask and the face. In fact, due to the resistance they generate without a fit test verification process, a surgical mask may offer more protection because more airflow may pass through the mask. An N95 mask with a valve, such as an industrial grade mask, that lets airflow out will not afford protection to the public. Surgical masks, or what many call procedural or medical procedural masks, have been the mask of choice until the Delta surge arrived. Early in the pandemic, they were thought to block 99% of exhaled droplets and 75% inhaled droplets. The American Society of Testing and Materials is an international organization that sets the standards for surgical masks. They establish three levels of barrier protection, level one, low, level two, moderate, and level three, maximum. Levels two and three are recommended for COVID protection with equal filtration capability. However, level three is the most fluid resistant surgical mask. Surgical masks catch droplets and viruses by both electrostatic attraction and filtration through the processes of physical interception and inertial impaction. These are just technical terms for how they physically catch the particles. A two-layer cloth mask is thought to block both exhaled and inhaled droplets by 60%. Now believed to be woefully inadequate to protect us from Omicron and Omicron subvariants. Cloth masks only catch droplets and viruses by filtration. That's why they're less breathable and less effective. HEPA, high efficiency particulate air filters, which are in airliners and certain buildings, work by three processes, inertial impaction, interception, and diffusion, but not by electrostatic attraction. When you consider using cloth barriers, keep in mind that Duke researchers found that neck fleece, gaiters, or bandanas offer very little protection. The second critical factor is fit. If air is escaping around the mask, the purpose of the mask is defeated. The better the seal, the better protection. And don't touch the surface of the masks while wearing them. The second aspect of fit is to wear the mask properly, which is a major issue. And when you use them, please don't wear them under your nose. Up to a quarter of the people routinely put whatever they have under their nose. That's nothing more than a chin diaper. And, and it doesn't provide you any protection. And so, again, we also need to instruct people on how to use them. And I think that's the important message on masking. A mask should completely cover the nose and mouth and should be tight around the ears or head for a snug fit. Some of the most commonly seen mistakes are wearing them without a good fit and failing to cover both the nose and the mouth. In our certification course, we show how professional caregivers remove masks they will have to reuse after they've cared for someone with known COVID-19. We show how to store them for reuse and how to make them last. If you were to care for someone at home who is sick, remember that you want to reduce the dose or the number of virus particles you might absorb. Your best defenses are distance, speed, and barriers. Keep your distance from the patient. Minimize the time in the same room or nearby. And properly use barriers. A mask is a barrier. The last dimension of fit is the use of multiple masks or layers.
either because an ideal filter cannot be found or that multiple layers help provide a better seal. Many of our leaders in government and industry double mask. The third critical factor of masks is the finish. Safe and careful removal of the mask after use, washing your hands, and decontamination of reusable masks. Remember, don't touch the surface of the mask while wearing them. Carefully remove the mask by the straps, again without touching the surface of the filter section. Wash your hands thoroughly after you handle the mask, and remember, we naturally touch our faces about 23 to 24 times an hour. If you're using cloth masks as a second layer over a surgical mask, wash them with warm soap and water. Dispose of disposable masks carefully, and if you're forced to reuse disposable masks, rotate them and store them in a dry place to allow them to air out and allow the virus to die. Many caregivers put them in lunch bags so that they can dry out and they rotate one for each day of the week. A final word on buying masks. Make sure if you are buying level three surgical masks, N95 or KN95 masks made in China, that they are approved for medical use and that you are purchasing them from a trusted source. There are many counterfeits. Early in the pandemic, Dr. Atul Gawande, the best-selling author and global leader in healthcare quality, said it best about masks. I protect you and you protect me. But I just want to say, for your benefit and for the benefit of all your family and for everybody else around you, please, please, please wear a mask. All right. It's not a political statement. It's a statement of unselfishness. It's a statement of love. It's a statement of responsibility. It's a statement of good stewardship. It's a statement of loving your neighbor as yourself. Thank you so very much for sharing these resources with your families, colleagues, and friends. You'll be in our prayers. God bless you. The care of our communities is absolutely critical. Thank you for all you're doing to protect those at risk and those who are most vulnerable. As we say to all of our MedTAC bystander rescue care teams, we have to fight the good fight, finish the race, and keep the faith. Everyone is a patient and everyone can be a caregiver. So that video is available on our website for those that want to watch it. Uh, and we uh, put it on today without interruption, the Omicron, the Omicron sub, uh, uh, sub uh, variant or sub uh, uh, variant lineage is really, really uh, very transmissible and masks are absolutely critical. So as we come through the, the final 30 minutes of our formal 90 minute program, and we'll have longer content on with our podcast, we want to address misinformation and disinformation. Um, we, we frequently use the example from the TV show Bull of what the narrative is. And the narrative uh, is, uh, and Michael Weatherly is the star of that, uh, that television program, a narrative is a story that's told that makes sense of the version of the facts that support the argument made by an organization or individual. Unfortunately, we have a lot of political uh, 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 barriers and political uh, conflict going on. And so it's very important for you 
for your family to understand the science. Attorneys take advantage of the existence or absence of documentation to support their clients. That's their job. Uh, it's critical patients manage their medical information and supplement it with the best, uh, the best, the best you can find and trust your caregivers. So misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation are on the screen for those of you that are on the podcast. Uh, they, they really, the, the, these three categories really are different depending on the falseness of the information and the intent to harm, the intent to have an impact. Misinformation are unintentional mistakes that are inaccurate photos, dates, statistics, translations, and are not don't have the intent to uh, to persuade dishonestly. They're just mistakes. Misinformation and disinformation are frequently uh, misused in terms of uh, of being uh, referring to either one being the same. But disinformation is fabricated uh, or deliberately manipulated audio or visual content intentionally created um, uh, conspiracy theories or rumors. So this is intentional. It's in the intention is to harm uh, and uh, it's false. And then malinformation uh, is the, the idea of using uh, information that may be true, but the intent to harm is there. We always draw uh, attention to uh, the nurse Kimberly Hyatt uh, in our Pacific Northwest, where her HR file was released to the public and released to journalists when a uh, medical error had occurred. And uh, Kimberly, a great nurse who never had any problems in the past, who was uh, multiply uh, certified, uh, uh, found that that was the straw that broke the camel's back when they released uh, something from her HR file that was an innocuous uh, statement about a hug that she gave to someone who uh, complained, and she was uh, uh, and she 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 was uh, uh, somebody of uh, uh, of uh, 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 an alternate uh, uh, non-traditional lifestyle, uh, but a great nurse, and she committed suicide. So uh, we always draw attention to that. Now, waning immunity and vigilance is critical regarding where we are today. The Omicron BA5 subvariant um, evades natural immunity, evades vac vaccination-generated immunity, and those that have had both an infection and vaccines or hybrid immunity, it also evades it. We've got multiple examples of infection that occur within weeks after a first infection. The vaccinated may get mild infections, they may get less severe disease with mortality, but even mild infection infections can cause long COVID. So as we look at this evolution uh, of the virus, it's critical to kind of recognize that, uh, that uh, we really have a terrific outbreak of what many are calling a real beast uh, because of its transmissibility and its ability to evade, um, uh, evade the, uh, the uh, natural, and now what we're using, we're using the term immunity wall. And so what we'd like to do is we, as we look from the alpha to the beta, to the delta, to the Omicron transmissions and, uh, and those variants, that we really see that there really is uh, um, uh, a real problem with these. And we've asked uh, Heather Foster, who's a frontline rural caregiver, winner of the Pete Conrad Global Patient Safety Award, uh, trained as an infection preventionist and really helped us through, uh, uh, throughout the program to share her thoughts. So Heather, thank you so very much for being such a great contributor over the last almost 30 months that we've been running this program. Uh, a couple of quick questions. 
What's your message to families regarding the BA5 virus? We find it to be very, very potent, and it evades the immunity walls. We've got a lot of caregivers out. Not that they got it at work, but they got it from the community. What, what would you recommend to families now in the midsummer and heading into fall about being careful with their families? Well, I think the narrative is just to continue to um, be aware that we're not quite out of the woods yet, Chuck, and to continue to be mindful of um, protecting our own and others. Um, that means hand washing if you're in a high-risk area or potential of getting um, in contact with an unknown COVID source, wear your masks. Um, that, that has never changed. And we're finding that the testing, a lot of people aren't testing, but uh, we certainly are. And a lot of people that are knowledgeable are testing before a meeting and testing after a flight and before flights. Would you recommend that as we head into the holidays? We certainly are. Well, I think it's important to, uh, again, you know, let's be considerate of one another. Um, it's something that I, a trait I'm, I'm, I'm rarely seeing anymore, but we still have high risk populations and if you have been in a high-risk area, such as airports or traveling, and you, you're going back to work, it's, it's just consideration for others and, and around you. Um, I'm not going, maybe in some areas that's not warranted. I think it's, it's very um, individualized as well. But it, it, it doesn't hurt <laughs> um, to, to protect others. And the last question is that uh, from a nursing perspective and as a nurse taking care of immunocompromised patients, the message that we are trying to keep, continue to broadcast is uh, you, you may not need to do this to protect you or your family, but there are so many people that are cancer patients under care, immunocompromised right. patients with some fundamental immune uh, disease. Uh, or even transplant patients, there are many, many people out there now on uh, drugs that then inhibit their immunity, and it's really something that we can do as a good Samaritan for others. Is that a fair statement? Right, exactly, and I think you couldn't have put it better. Um, I think that's highlighting how we maybe or should have been practicing all along. We, we kind of forget about those vulnerable populations when we're out and about. Um, and so whether it be COVID or the flu season, I think it's just, it's, yeah, it's within our best interest um, within our communities to protect one another. Fantastic. I'm glad you brought up the flu. And it's just uh, important for any of the future uh, respiratory viruses uh, that we can get that uh, if we apply these fundamentals, we can have a happier, better life and our families can be a little bit, uh, a little bit safer through their holidays and vacations. Uh, you agree? Correct. Yes, I Great. agree completely with that. Um, yes, exactly. Well, well, thank you so much for taking time away from family uh, you're on your day off. But uh, uh, on behalf of all of us, thank you for, all, for what you've done and all the nurses who uh, step into uh, the gap every single day. We really appreciate it. You're so welcome. <laughs> so next, we, we want to hear from Chief Adcox. Uh, Chief Adcox is the uh, Chief Security Officer and Chief of Police at the University uh, of uh, Texas in Houston, and uh, a real uh, pathfinder in the area of emerging threats. 
Well, Chief Adcox, thank you so much for taking time today uh, to kind of address this issue of the family lifeguard. Um, we're now at the 29 month level uh, of, uh, um, of putting these programs on. And from your perspective as a law enforcement leader, as the chief security officer of a major medical center, um, what's your message to families regarding uh, the care that they need to take? Uh, it looks like we're losing a lot of staff in healthcare right now to be a uh, five, and they're catching it from their families and, and at home, not at work. Right. Uh, what I would say is uh, that we can't we can't uh, give in to the fatigue, and that the family lifeguard really really needs to continue to make sure that we're doing everything we can with our families uh, to be as cautious as possible and taking the prudent steps. Because I think you can you can pretty much see at most workplaces that the employees aren't aren't uh, becoming ill as much from working in the in their offices or working in the hospitals or working elsewhere. Most of it now is is outside of the workplace. And, it, and they're getting infected through contacts with family and friends and outings. So uh, it's not a time to relax. Uh, it's a time for us to continue with the vigilance and uh, protect our families. So, Bill, you know, you and I are working very closely with other leaders on active shooter events and the Uvalde um, the massacre and the other bad events that have occurred have really caught the uh, attention of leaders However, we're in real threat fatigue with COVID, and the more we hear about all these threats, at a certain point, we just, uh, we're just kind of overwhelmed. Any advice to us and your, the leaders of the medical centers uh, and the families regarding threat fatigue and, and doing what Dr. Boats, our, our real inspir inspirational leader, always talks about, which is uh, deliberative practice and that we just need to keep deliberately practicing uh, what we would do to respond to these threats? Well, certainly. Uh, I, I, I believe that it's quite important that because there is so much fatigue and there's so much uh, uh, unknown and there's, there is a tremendous amount of, uh, of, of uh, activity that's going on in and around us, we just really have to support one another. We have to take advantage of peer support groups. We've got to take advantage of our employee assistance program. Our, we've got to make sure that our employees are healthy. We've got to make sure they got the proper amount of time to do the things they need to do and uh, have balance in the workplace and, and uh, have, have uh, as many support systems and mechanisms in place as we can. We just got to remind everybody that, it, that we just have, we're in this together and that it is, it is critical and that we support one another. So, Bill, as we focus on these active assailant events, active shooter events, lethal force incidents, we know that no one technique will protect us, and so we take a layered approach. And it's really the same for COVID, isn't it? And with our family, there are multiple layers of protection, and things can get through one or two layers, but if the layers are all working together, that we have a better shot? No, you're absolutely correct. I think it's important to think of prevention as primary prevention and secondary prevention. Primary protection prevention is uh, primary prevention is taking all the necessary measures, whether it's masking, it's making sure that you, you know, you take you take the precautions when you leave the hot zone, being your work, you get to your home. It's making sure that you do your best not to get in, get up uh, in places where there's large crowds with very little ventilation, 
So you got your primary prevention, and there's things you can do. Secondary prevention is is that if something gets through the layer approach that you you mentioned, is that we have to then move to a very sensible and reasonable you know quarantining in our homes, uh, doing the things to to prevent secondarily prevent the person in our homes that that is is compromised with the with the virus uh, from passing it on to the other family members. So you've got to look at it in a layered approach, and you also got to look at it from uh, you know, the, whether it's primary or secondary prevention, uh, and, and at all times you've got to look at it that your 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 family lifeguard uh, has to do his or her job, your chief family officer has to do his or her job, and everybody needs to 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 be in this together. But again, you've got to have a, you've got to have an outlet. You've got to have some things that you can enjoy together. You've got to you've got to do something to to keep from 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 uh, getting overly stressed and and basically paralyzing yourself from doing the things that you should be doing. So, so Bill, the final question is, uh, you, you are a, a real role model as one of our threat safety scientists, but also a role model in terms of leadership and this, this intersection of leadership, best practices and technologies is really the sweet spot uh, of, uh, of high performance. Uh, doesn't that also apply to the family lifeguard approach? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You, if you look at those three uh, uh, principal pieces that you talked about, whether it's leadership or or it's, it's the practice, et cetera, uh, it's important that they that they that they're integrated and they work really closely together. And if you, will, as a family, will take a look at, okay, in my family, who's going to do this process? Who's going to be responsible for this? And you kind of work it out in advance. Then you, you you'll have a real good system in place for your for you and your children and your spouse and so forth. But yes, they're 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 equally important. They're interchangeable uh, practices. They're interchangeable processes. Well, thank you, Bill, and thank you for your vigilance and uh, and overcoming the overwhelming. Uh, fatigue and COVID fatigue. And I know, uh, although everybody's really hot to get their best uh, foot forward on uh, on active shooter events, uh, the great work you do is uh, we never hear about it if you keep doing such a great job. And, and so uh, safety is a quiet success and a very, very visible failure. And so thank you for being one of our safety leaders. Well, thank you very much for, for, the, for putting this program on. Thank you very much for for allowing us to have input, and uh, and uh, we just we just hope everyone uh, stays safe and and and, uh, and does everything they can to protect themselves. Well, thanks, Bill. Take care. So, uh, Chief Adcox really addressed this uh, this issue that we look at in threat safety science uh, of inside and outside threats, and the fact that we have to be vigilant in resilience building. And and if you watch uh, any of our other uh, programs regarding the 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 threat safety science, you'll see that our goal is really we'll never uh, isolate or remove all threats, but we definitely can. Uh, can do more. And uh, most recently with the BA5 uh, Omicron lineage, uh, we our inside threats and our outside threats to the families of our essential workers are far greater, and we're running a far greater risk there. And it's really important that people really understand that. And so as we kind of sum up here and, and head to the home stretch, when we think about why mask, vaccinated or not, 
can I, can I catch it? Can I spread it? Can I get sick now? And can I get long haul disease? The answer is universally yes, in, in all age groups. And we're seeing because the immunity wall is not protective, either vaccinated generated immunity wall or prior infection immunity wall or hybrid, meaning somebody that got sick after they were vaccinated are still getting sick. So we've got to really be vigilant about distance, mask, um, and, and the high contact surfaces as well. So we really appreciate Bill sharing that uh, uh, with us. As we think about uh, going forward, it's really, really vital that we think about testing. And the issue of testing, as we've mentioned, and uh, we've gone back to our testing webinar. We highly recommend that you, if you want to take a deep dive and understand how the uh, home tests and how the PCR tests work, please do that. We don't have time today to cover it. At the end of the webinar, I'll play uh, a short section uh, regarding the, uh, the uh, testing, but the difference between the PCR and the rapid antigen testing and the, the pros and cons and why, how we would use the rapid antigen to make sure that we're not contagious if we've been exposed, uh, that we have to take it over uh, multiple times, and the fact that the PCR test is much more the gold standard. However, the drawback with that is that it detects the virus viral debris after you're infectious. And so understanding how these, uh, these work are critical. And when we think about traveling safer, um, uh, uh, we need to assess the threats, vulnerabilities, and risks, test before departure, maintain safe practices in cars. They're very poorly ventilated. Uh, practice airport and boarding safety. We know that when you're in the lot, you, on the jetway, when you're in the potty, when the plane uh, ventilation systems are not running, you're really at significant risk. And then en route safety, it's far better to wear a mask and, and use a straw and not eat when the other people are eating when they've got their masks off. All these things are really basic science, uh, but we tend to forget them. Repeat airport safety practices when you get to the destination, repeat safe practices in cars, test before a meeting if you're on the way to a meeting or uh, to meet with family, and repeat the processes going home. We think that these are really great ways to uh, make sure that we can get this, uh, this, work, uh, this work done. Dr. Gregory Boats covered for us uh, our family safety plan and the five R's, which we won't cover today. But what we'll do today is uh, we've asked uh, uh, one of our great, uh, great uh, uh, leaders uh, uh, to share his thoughts with us, uh, and that is uh, Randy Steiner. We actually caught him last night after we were working on an emerging threat program with the University of California, Irvine, and I'm going to play the video uh, of his latest recommendations now. So Randy, thank you so much for your constant support of uh, our initiatives and focused on so many different areas of emergency management. Now midsummer, heading to the fall and we're looking at so many of our university students and families going back to uh, the typical uh, curriculum. You're really trying to prepare for that. Uh, the BA5 virus is a really bad virus. Um, your advice to families to be ready and to be able to be prepared for people that get infected. Well, first of all, um, you know, keep your guard up. You know, it's we're with the, the the big cities like Los Angeles, even Orange County, and the bigger institutions. We have this issue of you know people are burnt out. They're burnt. They're they're sick of this virus. They're sick of dealing with it. So things like mask mandates. We just saw it in L.A. where they were 
really at the point where they needed to reenact mass mandates, they didn't because primarily because of the pushback that they were afraid they were going to get. Um, but we got to be vigilant. You know, those masks help. Those masks prevent infections. So, you know, keeping that mask on when you go into a grocery store, putting that mask on when you go into an enclosed area, you know, and that's what's that's pro probably going to be the, your best protective measure right there. Um, as 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 vaccines come, you know, new vaccines are coming. Keep up on your vaccines. That 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 has been shown to reduce infection rates all over across the board across the world. Um, you know, we 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 can't give in to the, the the fatigue. You know, it's the virus doesn't have that 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 fatigue that the virus is going to continue to mutate it's going to continue to spread it's not going to get tired we're getting tired and we i get that everybody is i'm tired too but we have to remain vigilant we have to keep our guard up um, the only way that we're going to control this thing is to contain it and the way we contain it is to stop people from getting infected so using those same measures washing your hands staying home if you're sick if you've got a cough or a fever not going to other people and spreading it and not going to places where people may spread it to you, where you in turn spread it to your family. So keeping those 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 defensive measures up is so important right now. We're, we're, we're getting ahead of this for the first time in, in what, two years? And if we continue those defensive measures that we've been doing, we can get ahead of this. We can get back to that that new normal, whatever that is, but you know, somewhere beyond COVID and, and you know, get back to some some semblance of life, but we have to do the work now. So Randy, you are responsible for emergency response at one of our major universities and tens of thousands of students and thousands of faculty. Um, we talk about the lifeguard as, uh, the role of a lifeguard is 90% prevention and 10% rescue. And most people always think of lifeguards and rescue, but your job is that way as well, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, we, our, our job is to, not ask what are the odds or to say that'll happen or this won't happen. Our job in emergency management is to ask what if it happens. I mean, you can put a priority on things. What's the likelihood? We do hazard vulnerability assessments for just that reason to try and figure out, you know, what are our priorities for planning? Uh, but we have to look at everything and we can't say that something will or won't happen. We have to say, what if it does happen? Are we prepared? And we do that by, by you know, going through our planning process and understanding, you know, I've said it a, a time and time again, that a plan is flexible, it's adaptable, and it's scalable. It's gotta be at a level where you can address things as they come. It can't be what we say in the weeds where you know, you're planning everything out in such details. You have to have a flexible, adaptable, and scalable plan. So that's the first part of the process is have a plan. Identify what you need to plan for and then make a plan to deal with that so that you're not caught flat-footed. If you do that, that's the prevention piece. Like, like you said, Chuck, is, you know, that's, the, that's the biggest part of the process. We spend very little of our time in response mode. My, the, the, the Emergency Operations Center at UCI has only been activated once in, in a real event. Uh, you know, so the vast majority of our time is, is on that planning effort. And every university has a counterpart like me, and so does every city. You know, it's, it, it's, we're, we're paying this person to develop these plans and to go through this, 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 stand, this method, method of, of preparing us for whatever will come. 
90% of the, well, 99% of the time, nothing happens, nothing does come. But when it does, having that plan in place makes all the difference. And so you recommend that for families? Absolutely. Families Absolutely. have their plans. That's part of our, our, our standard emergency preparedness training is going to the individual. That in, Everything starts at the individual plan. It's, you know, the, 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 the big earthquake scenario. Let's, let's take that for example. That, the, the, the success of that and the, of the, the response and the recovery from that is all going to depend on those individual family plans. Your first responders aren't going to get to you right away. And that's in most scenarios, whether it's a fire, whether it's a big earthquake, in any sort of natural disaster, you're going to have a period of time when you are on your own. If your plan is to just bunker down and wait for emergency response or EMTs or, or firefighters to come and get you, you're, you're way behind. You have to go get your water. You have to go get, make sure you've got medications. You gotta make sure you have food for your pets. You gotta make sure that you have food for yourself and your family to, to survive for three, up to three days in some searches. That's the catastrophic earthquake scenario. So those individual plans are so important because in any big disaster or big event, the, the, the responders are gonna be overwhelmed. And what's going to make them be able to get to you and to save you or protect you or rescue you is going to be your ability to take care of yourself in those first few critical hours and days. And Mandy, you had personal experience with this in a plane crash, losing your mom and your, your dad worked with other physicians then to really put together our emergency response system for trauma didn't you yeah yeah and that's you know a, a a story that's a good story i mean sort of on the opposite side we went down in a in a field in the middle of winter in nebraska uh miles away from any help uh we ended up in that field for eight hours um before my dad decided to finally go out and get help which he was able to find and bring back to the airplane and evacuate us to a, to a small hospital um but the, 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 he didn't have a plan. He, he never thought I'm going to crash an airplane in the middle of a field in the middle of winter with my family on board. I should have a plan for that. But that's exactly what he, what the planning process entails is looking at things like that. If you're going to fly an airplane, you should have a plan to say, if we go down, what do we do? What is, what, do I have the equipment? My dad had to find a pen light. He was, he's a doctor and found a little exam pen light. That was the only light on the on the airplane a light source on the airplane he didn't have a flashlight he didn't have a first aid kit in the plane he's a doctor so you know it's that's that's one type of of incident but that's those are the types of things we have to look at if you're going to be look, doing these you know any kind of activities you need to be prepared for it in your car we could have a big earthquake in, in southern california that brings down overpasses and you could be stuck between two of them do you have a hat in your car do you have water in your car? Do you got a couple granola bars or something? Do you have a good set of pair of shoes that you may need to put on and to, to, to walk out of there? It's those kind of things that you have to think about. And, and making those plans, I think, is, is so important. And there's so many resources where, you know, it's, it's not contingent on me to tell you, there's so many resources that, that you can tap into to help you build that plan and help you make that plan. Randy, you, that strikes home to me as a pilot. On my uh, first nighttime cross country, uh, I lost all lights in the in the cockpit and had to go by memory 
and uh, and by field to fly back uh, because I couldn't see any of the instruments. Unfortunately, I was VFR, so I was flying visual flight rules and I knew where I was going. Uh, but it really taught me to have a headlamp. So I had in my gear bag a headlamp that I could put on my head and my forehead and not have to hand on, on, uh, hang on to the light. So, yeah, so well, listen, important. Randy, thank you so much for your thoughtfulness. You're welcome, John. So we are very, very grateful for uh, all of our leaders that uh, helped us uh, uh, today uh, develop this, uh, this program for you. And uh, we will um, be continuing to work with uh, these leadership organizations to uh, develop better and better content for you as we go through uh, uh, the work uh, that we're, uh, we're doing. Uh, what we'd like to do uh, now is to have uh, our voice of the patient, uh, Jennifer Dingman, will close us. We're just a couple minutes over for those of you that are caregivers who have shift work and are doing our and getting certified for continuing education. I will show after Jennifer closes us officially for the, our webinar, I will close uh, with uh, uh, our, a section of one of our uh, programs on testing for those in the podcast that wish to listen. So we're so grateful. Thank you very much for attending uh, today. And what we'll do uh, is listen to uh, Jennifer Dingman officially close this webinar and then I will play the, the testing video and then we will be uh, done with our uh, with our podcast. Thank you for uh, uh, being with us today. Um, uh, we are very appreciative of, uh, of all that uh, you do for your families. Jenny, thank you very much for being uh, so supportive of our program today. Uh, we want to give you uh, the last word as a patient and representative of uh, families. Would you please close us? Thank you, Dr. Denham. Today was a wonderful, wonderful program, and I really appreciate everything that you and your team are doing, Dr. Denham. As I said earlier, I strongly encourage everyone here to please share the recording of this webinar with all of your friends, colleagues, and neighbors. This is something, as I said earlier, that we all need to live with. And having our lifeguard in our family is just something that is going to help us get through all of this together. God bless, and we'll see you all next month. Thank you, Jenny. Take care. So we're very uh, appreciative of Jenny uh, being uh, our voice of the patient throughout our program. Uh, and uh, when we uh, close our, our program, um, we like to draw attention to kind of a maxim or a, a, um, a motto that we like to use, which is fight the good fight, finish the race, and keep the faith. Uh, because everyone uh, is a patient and everyone can be uh, a caregiver. And we believe that this is really uh, critical for everyone. Uh, what we'll do now, and we have additional resources regarding our bystander rescue care uh, area. We won't go through those now. We'll see you next, uh, we'll see you next month. And for those of you that want to stay on and listen or watch uh, our videotape on testing, I will be uh, showing that. And then, uh, and then when that fades to black, uh, we're done today. Can testing make family gatherings safer? You know, it's critical to focus on the word safer and not safe. We have to use our common sense. We need to understand the relationship between threats, vulnerabilities, and risks. 
For given threats, our vulnerability actually determines our risk. So when we consider going to a gathering or meeting, we need to assess the threats intrinsic to the group and the setting or the inside threats. And we have to consider the outside threats, the community immunity and the background infection rate at the time of the meeting. The inside threats relate to whether everyone is, quotes, up to date, unquotes, on their vaccinations. Has everyone who are eligible for the boosters been boosted? You know, the waning immunity of those who have not been boosted puts them at risk for breakthrough infections. And more importantly, they may be a threat to infect others at the gathering. Next, consider those who are at risk due to age, immunocompromised conditions, or children who are not yet eligible for vaccination. Are there any other unique vulnerabilities of the group who are being gathered? The outside threats include the level of community immunity, the community infection rate in the city where the gathering is occurring, and any unique threats on site, such as poor ventilation or close quarters. Your strategy should be to reduce vulnerabilities to be safer. You will never be 100% safe. However, you can make any gathering much safer by very simple practices and by paying attention to the details. Finally, consider rapid antigen testing of everyone just before the event to reduce the likelihood of spread. Design the seating to reduce risk. Separate the unvaccinated or those who are not up to date on their boosters and travelers from high risk areas from the attendees who are at great risk. Pick the best ventilated venue Maintain the safe practices of social distance, use of high quality masks, hand washing, and disinfection of high contact surfaces. Now that we know that aerosol transmission is enormous, what we tell our young people is, don't dare share air. We've developed our family lifeguard checklist to make family gatherings safer using this strategy, and we have deployed it to tens of thousands of families. Rapid testing should be considered as just one defense mechanism and not a guarantee of safety. The data is evolving and the false negative test result is the riskiest factor to consider. The more virus you have, the more likely you are to have a positive test. A negative test does not mean a person is in the clear, just that they are less likely to be infectious. Thank you for your attendance today and we'll see you next month.